Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on March 2nd, 2016, and is titled Children of Paradise, The Struggle for the Soul of Iran, and features Laura Secor, author of The Children of Paradise, Stephen Heinz, president of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and an introduction by Suzanne DiMaggio, director and senior fellow at New America. The timing for a discussion like this couldn't be better. Uh, I think uh, this book is essential reading at this moment when we have just reached a landmark nuclear deal with Iran and just days ago witnessed uh, what I would describe as a very significant election in Iran as well. Stephen? Thank you very much, Suzanne. Welcome, everybody. It's terrific to see such a good turnout for this conversation. Um, it's a very, very important book, and I'm delighted that Laura completed it. We've been talking about this book for eight years, and it's been a labor of love and a, and a, and a profound challenge because it gets deeply inside the complexities of this very, very complicated society. Um, as we start, I just want to also acknowledge Ambassador Bill Lures, who is here. Um, Bill has been uh, the leader of the Iran Project, which has been our partner with the Rockefeller Brothers Fund for the Track 2 dialogues that we conducted with Iranians and for a lot of follow-on work that we believe helped uh, create the environment for both successful diplomacy and um, acceptance by the U.S. Congress of the final nuclear agreement. So Bill and Wendy and Iris, thanks for being here too. So um, as I said, you know, the, the story of the Islamic Republic of Iran is, is a very complex story and of necessity your book is a very complex and ambitious book. It is both an intellectual history of the Islamic Republic and a political history uh, of the country. Um, and it is told in a, in a way that makes the complexities of the philosophical and theological uh, foundations of this society very, very real and very powerful. Uh, so congratulations, it's a, it's a fantastic book. So I'm gonna try to organize this conversation in four segments because there's a lot to cover. The, the first segment I thought we might just talk a little bit about the, your craft, about the methodologies that you use to assemble um, the, the book and, and the research you did, the travel you did, the interviews, the Persian language sources. I'm just interested in how you gathered the information that became the basis of the book. And in the second, I want to move pretty quickly to the second, which is to really examine the intellectual currents that run through Iranian life, um, that go back pre-revolution, but certainly I, I want to focus on those intellectual trends and ideas that shaped the revolution itself and the competition of ideas that continues in intellectual discourse in Iran and shapes the current society. And then the book is marvelous in telling human stories to kind of illuminate these larger questions. And there are probably more than a dozen profiles of individual Iranians in the book. And I want to ask you about three 
um, to tell their stories and, and what those stories reveal. And then we're going to quickly wrap up before we take questions from the audience with your thoughts about Iran in the future. So tell us, tell us a little bit, Laura, about uh, how, you, how you did the work, how you did the research. Uh, I know you went to Iran five times. And the last time was in 2012. And, and maybe start with the experience you had being interrogated at the end of that trip, which became your last trip in that series of trips. There's a lot there, and I want to at least first say thank you to the New America Foundation and to Suzanne and to you and to, and to Bill Lures for um, including me in some of the fantastic luncheons of the Iran Project and um, being a part of my seemingly endless research. Um, so in terms of how the book is put together, Yes, I made five trips to Iran as a journalist. Actually, four as a journalist and, and one as, um, as a tourist. My first trip was a tourist trip, which was my longest visa. Um, and when was that? That was in 2004. Okay. And then I started going back to cover elections in 2005. Um, so this covers really a period from 2004 to 2012. I was thinking on my way over here about exactly how to explain the role of those trips in the composition of this book, because it's not obvious. Um, a lot of the research for this book was conducted outside of Iran. Um, the trips to Iran were the heart and soul at the same time of the work, because that was my introduction to the country, my understanding of its atmosphere and its politics. Um, I was mainly covering political life under Ahmadinejad, um, and that certainly is in the book. Um, but in terms of the, the deep profiles of individuals, that was not work that could be carried out really inside the country. Um, I think when you, when you read those profiles and see how much people were willing to reveal about their early lives and their thoughts and dreams, um, you can see why that might have been a challenging thing to ask people to do under um, repressive conditions. Um, and there's also a huge amount of, uh, of research that went into this book. Um, because, you know, I think when I started traveling to Iran, just to sort of back up um, a little bit, in 2004, I had gone there looking for this reform movement that we were reading about in the press at that time. This was under President Khatami. The images that we were seeing were very vibrant and exciting. There was a sense that this was a country that was opening and, um, and where there was a huge amount of civic energy that was just bursting forth. So I went there in pursuit of that movement. Um, and I understood that it had a deep intellectual dimension, which was of interest to me. That was my journalistic background, was really in the journalism of ideas. Um, and when I got there, I found a much more complicated picture than I had really envisioned. It was really the end of something when I arrived in 2004. It was the last year of Khatami's presidency. There was a lot of anger and disappointment. There certainly had been forces unleashed during those eight years that were never put back, but there was also a sense of, um, of heartbreak yeah. over, how, over the things that had not been done and the energies that had sort of run up against brick walls. And I wanted to understand that. So when I came back, I was looking for a book to read that would explain to me who the reformists were, what they had wanted, what their vision was, 
and what exactly had happened to, um, to bring us to that impasse. I didn't find that book, and in a sense, my book is an attempt to construct it. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's dig into the kind of intellectual foundations of the Islamic Republic. You know, when we think about our own founding, we obviously look to the Federalist Papers and Hamilton and Madison and Jay, and we look to Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration and the notes from the state of Virginia, and of course the Enlightenment philosophers that they drew on in those founding statements. In Iran, there is this incredible contest of ideas that take on state versus theology, nationalism versus openness to the world, Talk a little bit about who the Hamilton, Madison, and Jay of Iran are. <laughs> I, I wish there were such a direct analogy. Um, I can tell you what I found when I went looking, which was, I went looking first in, in the pre-revolutionary literature, because I would talk to revolutionaries. I was looking for people who could give me the experience of the revolution and explain to me what the ideas were that motivated them and what um, had connected them to this movement. And one after another, people referred me to a children's story. Mm -hmm. And that was The Little Black Fish by Samad Behrangi. Um, and it was written by actually a secular leftist. And it was a story um, that I guess I, if I go into detailing it, we might be here all night. <laughs> but, um, you could read it in the book, though. <laughs> <laughs> but so when I read this story, my first reaction, I, I will tell very briefly, okay, there's a little black fish. He's living with his mother. He's swimming in his, actually, I shouldn't even say he. We're, it's not clear right. the gender, no gender of the little black fish. Um, this fish is swimming in a stream with its mother. Um, the stream is a very limited space, and at one point the fish decides that it wants to leave the stream and see what lies beyond it, and see if it can eventually find its way to the open water. Everyone around the fish says, this is the world, this is all there is, there's no place for you to go. Um, and the fish insists on going on. So the fish goes on, and the next place it finds over the waterfall is a pond, and the pond is full of frogs who believe that they are nobility and the finest creatures on the planet, and that there is no world beyond this frog pond. And the fish goes on and on and encounters many obstacles. And it, in the end of the story, which is really alarming for a children's story, um, the fish makes its way to the ocean, where it expects to find a school of brave, freedom-seeking fish like itself, who are so powerful that they can drag the fisherman's net to the bottom of the sea. But the little black fish, before joining this group, is eaten by a heron. So, and it's eaten by a heron in the process of saving another fish that is in the heron's stomach. There, its last thought is, my life doesn't really matter. What matters is the influence my life has on others. So this story, when I read it, not only suggested a very dark children's literature. Um, <laughs> you didn't read that one to Charlie, I suspect. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> I first found it infuriating. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how this was a revolutionary um, piece of literature. Mm. And what's happened to me in the last eight years is that that story has become so meaningful to me that it now frames my book. Um, and one of the things that I had to discover was what kinds of streams were feeding into this revolutionary movement. And this, um, this story was one piece of that literature. There's a vast pre-revolutionary literature that, has, that contains so much of the uh, sort of the intellectual world of the Islamic Republic today. Um, from the Little Black Fish, I went to Shariati because mm -hmm. Ali Shariati was a lay political theorist, I'm oh, sorry, a lay theologian and 
was in a sense used as a political theorist, though that wasn't his intention. Um, he was someone who um, really had an enormous impact on mobilizing um, Islam as an ideology. And again, this was somebody who people I spoke to and interviewed inside Iran on all sides of the political spectrum referred me to. So it seemed like it was really necessary to grapple with his ideas. And what was striking to me about Shariati was that um, was just how modern a thinker he was, and how and the way that he was struggling in a sense to bring some things into harmony that I'm not sure anyone, at least in Iran, had done before him. He was um, he was operating in an environment where the most sort of effective political opposition to the Shah was coming from the left, and he was. Um, attempting to, in a sense, appropriate the, the values and the impulses of the left and attach them to Islam. And in order to do that, he was not deriving them from Islam. He was saying, these ideas originate in our religion. And it was an incredibly, um, it was an incredibly revolutionary thing to say. And galvanizing. Galvanizing. Yeah. And it, in a sense, it, it took what had been um, if the left was popular among educated elites, it took ideas that may have had that kind of valence to them and handed them to the traditional classes saying, this is your birthright. And so that struck me as a really significant moment in free revolutionary mm -hmm. history. So in a way, the last theorist I came to was Khomeini. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are others too, <laughs> but for the, the sake of, um, of getting to the bottom of it. And Khomeini, in a sense of all of the people who influenced the course of the revolution, he, was, he had the clearest vision. You could look back at his early writings from, 19, from the 1940s even and see a straight line in his thinking and a straight line from his thinking to his practice, even though it actually went through many twists and turns along the way that I didn't even get to detail. Um, and the thing that surprised me in reading this was how much the intellectual discourse and the contest of ideas within the Iranian revolutionary and pre-revolutionary communities were, but how much they were also open to and drawing on Western influences, whether it was Marx or Popper or Heidegger um, or John Locke or the existentialists. I mean, it, it's all there and they're, they're debating it and they're weaving it into their own ideas. They're rejecting parts and embellishing others and it's becoming Iranian. It's becoming a national expression, but not in isolation from all of that discourse in the West. In no way in isolation, in dialogue, in yeah, a sense. Yeah, exactly. Though it's an interesting dialogue, because one of the other things that I discovered that I found really fascinating was that a lot of the ideas, the transmission of ideas from West to East is also not linear in an obvious way. There are a lot of, um, there's a lot of serendipity involved. There are certain thinkers, certain Iranian thinkers who happen to study in a certain place at a certain time and to pick up a book and to bring that thinker back into Iran and, and give that set of ideas a very different kind of life in Iran than it had in its original context. And there was also a really active conversation going on, particularly at the time of the revolution, though really beyond it too, about what use Iranians could and should make of ideas that were developed elsewhere. Was it um, deracinating, in a sense, to take Western ideas and assume that they were applicable in, in a context that they didn't arise from? Or were ideas, in a sense, homeless? Did mm -hmm. they belong to human history more than they belonged to this culture or that culture? This was a very active and significant 
debate for the future of the country. And it was certainly something that was, um, that was still going on through the 90s. Yeah. And it, it, it's intellectually, it's actually quite exciting to, to read about. It must have been very exciting to, to, to kind of discover all of that richness in the intellectual discourse. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, two things that come out of that discourse that are still part of the fabric of Iran today that are very troubling to Americans. The anti-Americanism, and I want to ask you to talk about West Toxication, uh, which was an essay written in 1962. So this is pre-revolutionary, but it becomes an important document um, that still is part of uh, the Iranian view of themselves in the world. Um, so kind of West Toxication, anti-Western thought, anti-American thought. And the second is the brutality. There is, in your book, documents this enormous brutality in the history of the Iranian Revolution and in the 37 years since. Um, there were periods, as you, as you show, when thousands, maybe as many as 5,000 prisoners were executed in the summer of 1988 under a fatwa from the Supreme Leader. Um, there were 80 kind of secular intellectuals who were serially murdered um, later in the 80s and 90s. There are human rights violations going on today. Americans are being held in Iranian prisons. So I want to talk about those two things because I think they're a bit related. But talk about West toxication and how that manifests itself today. And then what were the intellectual roots of this brutality? Well, West toxication, you mentioned the Jalal Ali Ahmad essay, sort of it was a slender book that became um, a pretty major production in the pre-revolutionary period. Um, essentially, the idea was that at this time, you know, under the Shah, Iran was linked in many ways, economic and, and otherwise, to the West. Um, and this was an argument, essentially, that um, because Iranians consumed Western um, ideas and values and culture, they then saw themselves through the eyes of people who looked down on them, and that this was, um, this was eating their culture from the inside. And this was a very powerful argument, and in a way, an unavoidable one, because um, it described some things that were, that were real. And it also became a, um, <laughs> the anti-Americanism anti has a lot of different political roots and trajectories as well. But the idea of West toxication, the original person who actually coined that term, it wasn't Jalal Ali Ahmad. He took it from Ahmad Fardid, who was, um, he was, this always gets a little bit of a look of incomprehension, but he was an oral philosopher of Heidegger. Um, he didn't produce written work, and Heidegger at that time wasn't translated into Farsi, so he would, he was um, disseminating the ideas of Heidegger orally to students. Um, Heidegger was translated much later, but Fardy was the originator of that term, West Toxication, and some of the people who were emerged from his circle um, had a view of the West that was essentially, and here I'm probably going to bastardize it just a little bit because um, it's been, it's hard to, to hold all the details orally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the idea was essentially that humanism, the idea that human beings were at the center of, um, of our metaphysics is a, Western, um, is a Western one, and at its core, it is toxic to belief. And this idea in various permutations 
was transmitted through circles that then became close to Islamic fundamentalism. And the violence and brutality? It's do you, really, do you trace this to Ayatollah Masbah Yazdi, who no, kind of gave he, a theological basis for brutality and, and no, said that execution so. of the godless is not only permitted but necessary? He does all that, but he comes later. Uh -huh. um, he was not a major figure at the, at the time of the revolution. He really comes into his own later and becomes a significant figure even later than that. Yeah, <laughs> so including until that's just true. this Friday. Right, <laughs> until just this Friday. Yeah. Um, but he does, he now has this enormous seminary in Guam. I actually right. went there I, on one of my visits. I was determined to meet him because no, no, he didn't meet with, he was not going to meet with a female American journalist. There was mm -hmm. just no way that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I was pulled along on a string for a while, and I went and sat across the street from that institute every day, <laughs> sending him faxes with questions, but that didn't come to anything. Um, anyway, so he now has a huge amount of resources at his disposal. He has his institute, has the biggest library of um, American books in Iran, and that is, according to his disciples, because he believes he needs to know the enemy. Um, and he does have a very, have, he has a, um, directly and unapologetically violent worldview. I don't think that worldview was woven into the fabric of the revolution, but the violence, you know, it's an interesting question and I hadn't really thought about it as um, in those terms. I think in some ways, I guess I see it more as a political excrescence than a, than a religious one. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's um, necessarily doctrinal. <laughs> I think it may be more, and, and, to the extent that it's that you have a um, a repressive state apparatus that's that's perpetuating itself through repression and through excluding its um, its critics, it, that becomes its own logic. Mm -hmm. There's also a long history of local violence in Iran. It didn't start with mm -hmm. the Islamic Republic. Mm -hmm. I think um, I think it's been somewhat convincingly argued that the Islamic Republic has taken that to some new heights, mm -hmm. um, but. This is not... It's hard to say. Yeah, it's hard to say. It has been brutal. There's no question about that. So let's, let's turn now to, to some of the profiles. I'm, I'm going to pick on three of the people you profile so eloquently and just tell us a little bit about them and why their stories reveal, what, what their stories reveal. So I'm going to start with Ali Afshari. Um, maybe I should also just start by explaining the purpose of the profiles sure, in the book yeah. because um, the book, you know, it's a it's a um, it's a book that traces an arc of history. But in order to do this, I felt that um, one of the challenges in putting together a his, a recent political and intellectual history of the Islamic Republic and the struggle for reform within it. Um, was that the frame of reference is totally alien to us. Mm. And really, you can't start from anywhere. I, my little joke was I wanted this book to open in 1997. You can't do that. It just can't be done. The fact that I didn't start it in 1906 is still a problem. But <laughs> it starts in the 60s. And anyway, so to do that, to construct, I had to construct a world that you could um, inhabit as a reader and not be asking yourself all the time, you know, it's if you're writing about America and you say 1968, everybody knows what that means. This, this history of the Islamic Republic is, among Iranians, there are um, signposts that are very clear. There are temporal moments that people's lives hinge on. Um, 
And this arc of history cuts through the lives of individuals in a very direct and dramatic and epic way. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to bring people into the frame who could illuminate the history in a way that would be graspable, yeah. because I think that we have a tendency as American readers, there's a lot of curiosity about Iran in this country, but it is very hard to make it feel, um, to bring it out of the realm of the exotic, essentially, and to give American readers a feeling that there they too could, could go. <laughs> um, and it's very successful, I have to say. It's, it's one of the great strengths of the book. So to that end, you know, in the beginning, I thought I was going to write about only very famous, very important people in the reform movement. That's not what I did. I wrote about an array of people. Some of them are not even in the reform movement. Some of them, you will, a lot of them, you may never have heard of and you may not hear about again. Um, and then some of them were significant figures. Ali right. Afshari um, actually was a, a significant figure in his, in his moment. He was a young man born, I think, in 1975. So he was a, sort of of the post revolutionary generation in the sense that he remembers the revolution, but he was a child at the time. Um, and he grew up in a restricted environment, but it didn't bother him all that much because he was himself a pious young man. He was not likely to break the rules that broke against some of his more secular peers. Um, but he was uncomfortable. He felt like his friends wanted freedoms they didn't have, and he didn't understand why they couldn't have them. And he becomes a student activist, um, I guess at the end of the Rafsanjani presidency. This is a point when I chose him because his story also helps track the movement of student activism in Iran, which took a big turn at this point in history. Under Khomeini, who died in 1989, the student movement was really tied to the state, and it was kind of an arm of the state. Under Rafsanjani, it starts to become critical, at least of the president, because the student movement came from the left, and Rafsanjani was liberalizing the economy along lines that were seen as neoliberal, and it was a critic. The student movement became critical of those, of those choices. Um, and then when Ali Afshari comes into the student movement um, in the sort of late 1990s, the student movement becomes something else. It starts to advocate for democratic reform of the Islamic Republic. And the ideas that it takes up come out of philosophical journals that have been publishing um, really interesting and thoroughgoing critiques of the dominant ideology through philosophy and theology. So he brings some of those ideas to his campus, or helps bring them there. And students on his campus become big backers of the uh, candidacy of Mohammed Khatami in 1997, probably those student groups had a lot to do with generating enthusiasm for that election and getting people out to vote. Um, and once Khatami is in office, there was a sense of um, expectation from him. So around in the late 90s, a bunch of things happen at once. This was a narrative challenge in the book. Um, one of them is the serial murders that you mentioned of, um, of secular intellectuals who were murdered under really obviously suspicious circumstances by the security services. Um, Khatami does something amazing as president of a country like Iran. He cleans house in the intelligence ministry. And even though the house cleaning by a lot of lights doesn't go far enough, it's still hard to think of a country where a sitting president has said, these guys in my intelligence ministry are responsible for the killing of dissidents, and we're going to 
um, start over and appoint new people in this ministry. So he does that, and that's very hopeful. Um, but at the same time, and newspapers are starting up all over the country, which is exciting. Um, and, uh, and they're getting shut down just as quickly. So the student movement um, is active in supporting the newspapers, supporting the journalists who are being threatened with imprisonment, um, supporting the investigation into the serial murders, and supporting reformist candidates for parliament. And they, um, there's a big confrontation in 1999 where um, a student, they first their security forces raided a dormitory and in a very bloody and ugly way, and then the student demonstrations that followed um, really start to unravel. So Ali's story, I sort of follow him through the days of unrest around that time because he's kind of running this middle course where he is in touch with the reformists, he's trying to, um, to cooperate with the reformists, the students are kind of are pushing very hard and very fast against what the reformists do and don't have to offer, and they're feeling very frustrated, and he's kind of stuck in this middle position. The chapter ends with his um, really both harrowing and inspiring prison experience. Mm -hmm. He goes to prison after the student demonstrations are put down, and because he's kind of a significant figure in the student movement, which was um, really in the spotlights at that time. He is assigned multiple interrogators. He is kept up nights. He's, um, he is really under a huge amount of pressure. And after a mock execution, he confesses, which this is something that happens a lot in the Iranian prisons, where political prisoners are asked to denounce themselves and their movement and name names and go on television. Essentially, um, it's kind of a, an act of humiliation and also a warning to anyone connected to those people. So and these were all essentially false confessions. They're false confessions under obtained under torture. Yeah. So Ali Afshari makes a confession, and this becomes the lowest moment of his life. He, he said to me later that he was reading the accounts of Auschwitz survivors, and he read that people who were forced to do things against their beliefs died sooner, and he understood that viscerally that there was something about making that confession that was worse than any physical torture he had endured, and he wanted to kill himself. So he is, for a time, struggling to find a way to kill himself in a solitary confinement cell. And he has, a, he has an idea. He decides that he's going to let his torturers kill him. They have the means. All he has to do is recant his confession, and they will beat him to death. So he makes this decision. He goes back into the interrogation room. He says, I recant it all, and I'm not going back. And they start to beat him again, and he has a, an epiphany, which is that he starts to find that he's hungry again, and he wants to eat, and he's feeling better. And he finds that when he, and this is very dark, but when he gives up on his own life, they have nothing to hold over him. And they can't reach him anymore. And in the end, he's recovered himself, and he stays, he holds fast to his beliefs, he comes out of prison, he apologizes to the country for having made a false confession, and he became, for a time, really a symbol of, of resistance. That's an extraordinary story. So let's, let's move on to Asya Amini. So Asya Amini, um, I chose her as the profile to carry part four of the book, which is really about the Ahmadinejad era from 
its inception until um, the Green Movement. And I chose her for a few reasons. One, I wanted a women's rights activist to carry that section of the book because it was my feeling that at that time, um, this is kind of where the, the energy had, had traveled and this movement was becoming very, um, very active and significant on the scene. Um, and it also represented a different strategy than the reformists that I wanted to bring into the, into the picture. Um, so Asya is not a political creature in that sense. She's not um, someone who has tied her fortunes to those of political figures. She, um, she's born to a relatively you know, upper middle class family in, um, in the province of Mazanderan near the Caspian. Um, she has many advantages. If you look at her early life, it really could be, um, really could be unfolding in a lot of other countries in this world. Um, you don't have a sense of her being in a country that is severely repressive to women. She was a, um, she wanted to be a poet and a journalist, and she joined poetry circles and fought her way into poetry circles that consisted mainly of old men, and she fought her way into newspapers that consisted mainly of older men. Um, she became, a, she was a very ambitious young editor, and she um, was soon running whole sections of newspapers in Tehran, and, um, and, and also doing a lot of enterprising reporting, covering earthquakes and build up to war with Iraq and all of these things. So um, her life took a really unexpected turn. Um, I'm trying to think exactly what year this was, and now I'm, I'm blanking. I think it might be 2001. Um, she reads a news report from a small town in her home province about a young woman who, um, who was executed for crimes against chastity. And this woman, one news report says she was 21, one says she was 16. Asya wanted to know which it was and why this girl was, was executed. So she goes to the town and she asks around and she discovers that the girl was indeed 16. She finds her identity card and can prove this. Um, and she finds that the girl was, um, she was raped and forced into prostitution. And for this, prostitution is a crime against chastity for which you can be subjected to whipping, 100 lashes for the first two or three offenses, and then finally execution. And that's what had happened to this girl. Asya became just possessed by this story. This was a world she didn't know existed in her country. And her life was unfolding on such a different track, and that's also one of the themes of her story as I've told it. And she becomes an activist against juvenile execution. That's actually her main, her main interest for a long time um, because there was an issue with this in Iran with people particularly who are charged with crimes that they committed as juveniles, and then sometimes they're held in prison until they turn 18 and then executed. She also becomes an activist um, against stoning because she discovers at a certain point that um, it's illegal to carry out a stoning in Iran. There was a, a order from the head of the judiciary stipulating that this was no longer going to happen in Iran. But she starts hearing about stonings that are taking place in the provinces. And she goes and she collects evidence, including the bloody stones and witness accounts and everything that she can find, court orders. And she is able to prove that these donings are still going on. And what she finds is that the judiciary is, um, is not really under the control of the chief justice, that there are 
certain hardline judges, they're, they're actually, I then went to some Iranian lawyers and tried to get this nailed down because it is in fact the case that there are conflicting provisions in the penal code and in the constitution. On the one hand, that the that judges are required to adhere to statutory law, the law is passed in parliament. On the other hand, that if there is no relevant statutory law, they may then rely on scripture and relevant fatwas. Sharia, basically. Yeah. And these judges, the most hardline of the judges, believe that they answer not to statutory law or to the head of the judiciary, but to God. And this, by the way, mirrors the central problem in the organization of the state itself, because it is both a theocracy and it has elements of a Republican democracy, and they try to marry this together. This was Homini's innovation. Right. Well, interesting you say that. It's, that it also is the, it emerged out of compromise, yeah. because you had, on the one hand, these nationalists, these sort of liberal nationalists who were, who devised the first draft of the Constitution, and then you had the theocracy imposed on top of it. Yeah. So yeah, that there's a a dualism. struggle and yeah. a dualism that's yeah. embedded at the very core exactly. of the state, and it's embedded in the judiciary as well. The judiciary right. is a is a real hard nut because it's not um, it's really not clear under whose authority it it resides at all. Yeah. So let's move on to the last um, profile, and and this one is an interesting one because it's a man who was a revolutionary. He was uh, a prime minister in one of the early post-revolution uh, governments. Um, he had quite a career during the Iran-Iraq War, the 80s, ultimately was out of government, um, re-emerged in 2009 as presidential candidate and became the leader of the Green Movement. This is Hossein Mir Musavian. So tell us his story a little bit. So um, Mir Hossein Musavi is not one of the people I got to meet. <laughs> so this is because he's um, in house arrest. Because he's been under house arrest since yeah. uh, 2010. So his story is pieced together. Um, otherwise, he yeah he was the first prime minister. No, not the first prime minister, but he was an early prime minister. When the Islamic Republic was first founded, it was even more complex and um, and pulled in more directions than it is today because it had both a president and a prime minister in addition to the supreme leader. Um, today, it only has president. The prime minister, the post of prime minister, was eliminated in 1989. Um, but Musavi was considered sort of a hardliner because in the early days, in the 80s, you had a sort of uh, in Iran, you don't have political parties; they can't legally function, but you do have factions, and these are sort of loose groupings of like-minded political people within the establishment. They shift a lot, and people cross lines, but um, in the early days, in the 80s, you could pretty much um, delineate an Islamic right, which was sort of more conservative on social issues and more liberal on economic issues, and Islamic left, which was hardline on um, on almost everything, including foreign policy, and it had inherited a lot. Of, it was really the repository of a lot of the anti-Americanism, too, and the sort of uh, desire to export the revolution abroad. And then there were the centrists under Rafsanjani, the sort of pragmatic centrists, who are today being called moderates, and I, I have a problem with that. But <laughs> not because they're not moderate, but because I think that term is like a, it's, it's an American fiction. But I think that they are pragmatic centrists in the sense that they toggle between these Seems positions. like a fiction in our own politics. Well, <laughs> that's another story. That's another story. <laughs> um, anyway, so Musavi was a man of the Islamic left. And if you go back and you look at his public statements in the 80s, they are, um, they're pretty much echoes of Khomeini, and they're, they're quite sharply um, 
you know, ideological. Yeah. And he was a favorite of Khomeini's. He was, the, he was a layman, but he was an editor of the newspaper of the main Islamic party that was started after the revolution. He was, um, every time, you know, there were, there were conflicts really between him and Khamenei, who was president at the beginning. And I mean, in this, in this period, Khamenei from the right and Musavi from the left. And it seemed to a lot of people, particularly Khamenei, that often Khomeini balanced in favor of Musavi. So that was a, a early embedded rivalry between the two of them. And when Khamenei, in 1989, two things happened. After Khomeini died, Khamenei became the supreme leader and the, Isla and the post of prime minister was eliminated. The Islamic left was exiled from politics. So this becomes, in a way, a really consequential piece of Iranian history because those guys, they were crucial to building the Islamic Republic. They were ideologues. They were not um, oppositionists, but they were forced out of power. Musavi along with them. Those are the people who then start to coalesce around journals and think tanks, and be they became the reformists. They really traveled a huge distance in their, um, in their expressed political views. Musavi didn't do that, and that's one of the puzzles about Mir Hussein Musavi. He went silent after 1989. Some people said that it was because Khamenei um, had ordered him out of politics, that he was forbidden to contest politics after that point. Some people felt it was because he actually never changed his stripes at all and his faction moved away from him. He, was a, he went back into private life. He was an architecture professor. And several times the reformists tried to recruit him as a political candidate because he was popular. He was well-known and well-liked. He was a big name. <laughs> and um, he refused until 2009. And then he becomes the main reformist candidate for president in 2009. And when he came back on the scene, I, there were a lot of people who, um, who were skeptical about him because they didn't know where he'd been. And there was the joke about Ahmadinejad when he, when Ahmadinejad appeared and he was really spouting a lot of like very old school revolutionary rhetoric, people said, oh, he's the cartoon version of Musavi. Um, <laughs> so Musavi was like the was the original and, um, and a throwback to another yeah, time exactly. and to a dark time. Right. But he was a very canny candidate, it seemed like at the time, because he was a populist, which Ahmadinejad also was, because at the time there was a sense that the constituency that, that he would be fighting Ahmadinejad for was not really all that liberal. <laughs> so what was interesting was to see his evolution over the course of the 2009 campaign and its aftermath because he became, he became a really sharp critic of Ahmadinejad. He was clearly disgusted by the way the country was, by the direction the country was going in, by what he saw as you know, corruption and undignified behavior and um, economic mismanagement, economic mismanagement yeah. which was absolutely the case. Yeah. He took Ahmadinejad on in these public debates in a way that a lot of viewers found quite Which were thrilling. the first televised debates in Iranian political history. Yeah, I, I was kind of laughed because people described him as American-style televised <laughs> debates, and they're so not American-style. If you watch that, I mean, perhaps to their credit, really. Yeah. <laughs> at least compared to today. <laughs> but if you watch them, you know, there's a lot of discursiveness and um, people sitting at a, at a table and really having a conversation. <laughs> so that's something different. Um, yeah. Anyway, so he, over the course of the campaign, becomes increasingly more of a, of a lightning rod for a more demanding reformist constituency. And after, I think we all know, in 2009, when Ahmadinejad was, um, was announced to be the president by a landslide, which 
very few people um, seem to believe, um, there was a huge outpouring in the streets, largely for Musavi. Um, and he, uh, he was in a very interesting position because he kind of, there are people who still say, you know, he, he should have come out and he should have called people to the streets. He should have really led that movement more forcefully than he did. On the other hand, he was much more forcefully with that movement than Khatami had ever been with people in the streets. And it was, you know, they, it's a, the question of, of whether or not to call supporters to the streets is something that has bedeviled reformists for a long time because they suspect, not wrongly, that protests get put down with violence. Um, anyway, by the end of the book, I have him under house arrest with some very interesting things. He, he issues a lot of statements in the summer of 2009 that I found fascinating to read because he still worshipped Khomeini and still saw in Khomeini the, um, the true light of the revolution. And you know, in a way, it was like a sort of, I was trying, sort of struggling for the right metaphor here. It's like when, when a, a parent dies and you kind of attribute to that person everything that's best in yourself and in others and kind of it, it became, he had, Almost his, mythological. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His description of Khomeini um, became the the channel for all of his idealism, yeah. whether or not it had anything to do with Khomeini. Right. And but at the same time, he there was one of his statements that just kind of um, that I found really moving, where he talks about this was when all the reformists were forced to confess on television and forced on camera in prison garb, and it's a very dark. Um, you know, huge show trial situation. And he spoke about how, well, the regime, it can give you these, um, these symbols, but you supply the meaning behind the symbols. They put before you a man in prison pajamas. You can see that as a humiliation, but you don't. You see him as a hero. And so long as that's the case, they, have no, they, won't, they won't make our future, you will. And it's, you know, I, I can't powerful. quite do it justice, but to yeah, me, I kind of read powerful. that and thought, you know, this is like, in the world's canon of resistance literature, this has yeah. substance. Yeah. So one last question before, and I, 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 I'm eager to get to all of you, and I apologize that we've gone on a bit long, but it's such a rich conversation. One, one last question, and this is really about the future. Um, Henry Kissinger famously wrote, you know, that Iran has to decide, is it a cause or a country? And it's, of course, both. And you know, your story about Musavi is, is, is very much in that reign. I mean, the, the revolutionaries believe themselves to be idealists. And they believe that the vision of the Islamic Republic of Iran is an idealist, humanist you know, vision of a just society. And they deeply, deeply believe this to, to this day. And at the same time, it has all of these dark currents and um, uh, and it doesn't function terribly well because of the cumbersome nature of the duality in the system. So it's a legitimate question whether it's a cause or a country. And I guess I wanted to just ask you in the, we've just had you know, this extraordinary nuclear agreement, really extraordinary, and these elections last Friday, which um, are not a sea change in the Iranian political landscape, but in fact, better than we might have expected in terms of bringing more of the moderate and reformist voices into the parliament and into the assembly of experts and actually defeating every member of the parliament who opposed the nuclear agreement and defeating some of the 
oldest line, toughest clerics who were running for re-election to the Assembly of Experts. So it is a significant moment. So my question then is, do you think Iran is becoming less of a cause and more of a country? I think it's always been both. Um, I think that the revolution, in some sense, is not over. That there's a um, that the project of the Islamic Republic is what's interesting about it is that because it's never nothing like this state structure has ever existed in the world. It is, in a sense, a work in progress, and it is constantly sort of measuring its limits. And it produces surprises for all of us, including for the people invested in it, I think, for that reason. They, they try to, um, to get rid of dissent, and they can't, because the structure of the state reproduces it. And that's been fascinating to watch. This current movement is toward the center, and this is interesting, too, because you had, you know, if, if you want to look at it this way, under Khatami and then under Ahmadinejad, these two back-to-back -back presidencies kind of maybe delineated the extremities possible under this political system, which is sad in a way because Khatami was nobody's extremist. Um, but if that is how far it's willing to bend in this direction, and Ahmadinejad was as far as it was willing to bend in the other, what the Rouhani administration is doing with the support of the reformists who can really throw some substantial popularity behind this project is to bring the system together at the center. And in order to do that, I guess, I mean, to me, I'm curious how this is going to play out. I think it is, it's a stabilizing move, and it's also, it's healing at a moment when you've had really profound polarization and people just checking out of this system for a long time. So that is, you know, it's constructive. It leads you to a place where you're more likely to get things done. But what do you lose in that movement? And I'm curious about that because, you know, I think the reformists had a vision back in the 90s. They no longer, there's no longer really any talk about that vision having a real place in politics. And, but there are still reformists and there are still people who support that vision. Mm -hmm. And they are, at the moment, maybe using their votes in a strategic way in order to accomplish certain parts of, of the Rouhani agenda that they agree with, like the nuclear deal, and like a more um, sane, technocratic economic administration. Mm -hmm. And that is that these are agreed upon objectives, and it's a way of putting an idea of national interest that people can agree on um, in the fore. So it's a, it's a functional move. The question, in a way, is what happens to the various idealisms that, yeah. Great. Thank you very, very much, Laura. Terrific. So as we close, I want to thank Suzanne DiMaggio and New America for hosting this event and being our partners and in fact being partners on work related to Iran for 14 years. Um, I want to thank all of you for being here and engaging in this conversation and asking terrific questions. And Laura, my deepest thanks to you for the work that you've done and for this conversation tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.